welcome to episode 17 of Doe, a podcast where we discuss John and Jane Doe cases from around the world. I'm Allie. And I'm Kat. So the forensic fact for this episode is a brief overview of a pretty big scandal in Canada. In my law class, we watched an episode of The Fifth Estate about mother risk, which is what my notes are from. Ooh, I remember that from the headlines. Yep. So Mother Risk was a program and a lab at the Hospital for Sick Children, better known as Sick Kids, which is like a really prestigious hospital in Toronto. For over 20 years, Mother Risk, also I just want to say Mother Risk is a really weird name. Like Mother Risk reminds me of Mother Boy, which we've definitely talked about before. The uh, the magazine from Arrested Development. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, mother, mother boy, mother, mother risk. Boy. And this is like seems like mother risk, which I don't know. It just makes it seem biased. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's, it's definitely a weird, weird name. But anyway, so for over twenty years, mother risk was used by child protection agencies for forensic hair strand evidence in child wel- welfare cases across five provinces. By 2015, Mother Risk had performed over 35,000 hair tests, with 750 to 900 alone being done for cases in Nova Scotia between 2000 and 2015. And Nova Scotia's tiny. So the lab used hair strands to determine substance abuse in parents being investigated, and this testing resulted in a lot of children being taken away from their families. However, It turns out that the testing was being performed by scientists with no forensic training or supervision, resulting in a ridiculous amount of faulty evidence. Wait, they had no forensic training? None. That's really troubling. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like taking, well, I mean, they're scientists, so they do have a science background, so not quite taking someone off the street, but yeah. It's just like, hey, scientist, you do this thing you have absolutely no training in, but I'm sure it'll be fine because you're a scientist, because that's how that works. It's kind of like saying that if someone worked in film in one department, they could just do a whole other department's job, even if they're like in the art department and the other job is like sound. Is that like a good analogy? Yeah, that's a perfect analogy. I was hoping you would do like a film one because I was thinking something film, but I don't know enough about film. I'm missing film right now. I'm missing work a lot, but that's a whole other topic. (laughs) That's a whole other thing. So, yeah, I think they're treating it as every single case has to be treated as faulty. Oh, shit. Sorry, I'm just realizing that my whole, the whole theme of today for me is testing gone wrong because I'm watching that uh, Netflix show about the drug scandal in Boston. Oh, I don't know that one. So there was this, uh, basically one of the people that was testing, like a forensic drug tester um, at the Amherst lab in Massachusetts, was getting high on the supply. Oh my god. Yeah, and it was a big thing. And then there was other stuff, but uh, I was doing other things while I was watching it, so I don't don't feel like I can explain it fully correctly, but... um, We're connected. We're connected by our brains. Like, our brains are secretly... There's some telepathy going on. There super is. That's a weird coincidence. It's so wild. Anyways, please continue with telling okay. me about mother risk. Um, so one uh, example of this faulty testing. So there was one woman who was subjected to four hair tests. 
all of which said she was having 16 to 18 drinks a day. Which, is that even possible? That is a lot of drinks. Like, I know. I'm like, I think the, I think Fifth Estate said it was even more than a, like a chronic abuser. Like, this is a ridiculous amount. Basically almost impossible. Like, I'm sure someone somewhere has done it, but it seems like it's in the high percentage of people who yeah. would not yeah, be able to do like that. Yeah, that seems like alcohol poisoning at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So to prove that she wasn't abusing alcohol, because she was saying that she hadn't had anything to drink for that entire time the four tests were done. So she wore an ankle bracelet for 90 days, which was able to detect if she had any alcohol. I don't know how that works. Like, how does that work? How I don't, I have no I idea. I don't know, but apparently it does. Um, so another hair test was done for that same 90 days, which came back showing the same results as before. So 16 to 18 drinks a day. However, the ankle bracelet showed she had not had any alcohol, nor had she tampered with the bracelet to, you know, like ruin the results. Good job, magic bracelet. <laughs> so, what happened? At the time of the tests, she had been using a lot of hairspray, which contained oh. 70% alcohol. That is such a fucking, like, I I'm speechless. I know. I'm speechless right now. So, Mother Risk was detecting the alcohol in her hairspray. Oh my god. I know we aren't supposed to touch our faces at this time, but I'm face palming. <laughs> I keep touching my face when I'm in the house because I'm like, I'm clean. I'm trying not to just because like I go down and I like do laundry and I'm just very nervous about everything. So yeah, that's fair. That's a good idea. But anyways. Anyway. And then the guy who ran the lab even had to put it in writing saying, yeah, that's actually probably what was happening was we were detecting the alcohol in your hairspray. I'm just picturing someone putting 17 or 16 or however many drinks on their hair now. <laughs> right? I'm just like, but it's hairspray. Oh my god. Um, yeah, so she ended up getting her, I think she had two daughters that were taken away. So I, she got her daughters back, but they were kind of super anxiety mode. Uh, her one daughter refused to leave the house for a really long time because she was convinced like she was going to get taken away again. Oh my god. I mean, that's fair. That's so fair. How, like, yeah, I can't even. These, these are kids getting taken away from parents who weren't abusing them. For no reason other than your mom wears hairspray. Yeah. So the results of the test were rarely challenged in court because as soon as someone sees a person labeled as a forensic expert, they tend to just accept their testimony as gospel. So you'll have these parents saying, we didn't do what the tests are saying we did. And obviously... People are going, well, you're lying. And then the foren- so-called forensic experts, even though they have no forensic test uh, training, are saying they're going, oh, we well, have evidence that you did the thing. Wow. So in the end, some families got their children back, but others are still fighting. Holy shit. There's still people f- like dealing with mother risk cases now. Because that was a long time ago, wasn't it? Um, it was, let me see, the episode was from, like, 2017, I think. Sorry, what episode? Uh, the Fifth Estate episode. Oh, okay. And there's also a really good, um, Toronto Star investigation that I figure we'll just put up the links for both. Yeah, that'd be great. I just, I feel like I was very busy at work or something when this happened, but I do remember reading all of the star headlines about this. I somehow missed all this. I don't know how. I hadn't heard about it at all until the my law class. So 
yeah, we'll post the links to this because there is so much more. Like, this is just a super brief overview of how messed up this whole thing was. It sounds really fucked. Yeah, it's it was it's really hard to watch the Fifth Estate episode because like I was just so mad the entire time. Any sort of documentary or movie that touches on wrongful convictions or anything like this, it gives me so much anxiety that I just like kind of bypass them. So that yep. also might be why I didn't really pay attention to this because I was like, I can't deal with it right now. I know. It's it's just like I always say with when we're listening to different podcasts about true crime, if there's an episode about a wrongful conviction that takes a while to clear up, I can't do it. But yeah, so that's the um, forensic fact case for this time. It's kind of like an overview and it's like a choose yeah. your own adventure because we're just bringing it up and then... I'm going to go read more about it. Yeah, after. and yeah, we'll have the links to the CB because it was a joint investigation done by the CBC and Toronto Star. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah, so Fifth Estate is CBC and then um, the Star has a really good website set up for this as well. So yeah, I highly recommend reading through both. It'll take a long time to get through. Yes, and also just any, like choose any Fifth Estate episode and it's like, gold like i love that it's show true it's really really good yeah and as far as i know there's a lot of them on youtube or at least there was uh yeah i think you can actually just like um this episode you can just watch on the cbc website oh cool okay it's like right there so i kind of feel like they might have a lot of them yeah they probably do and then yeah i know that the cbc uploaded quite a few to youtube because when i moved into my apartment and i was unpacking i went on a spree so we are on a bit of a run. Yes, we are. With DNA Doe Project cases. I didn't realize this, but we're choosing all DNA Doe Project cases lately. Except for Peter Turner. I think that's the last one we did that it wasn't a DNA Doe Project. This one is an unidentified. Oh, that they're working on? That they're working on. Ah, okay. So this one is currently undergoing testing. Ooh. Okay, so my sources are the DNA Doe Project, Unidentified Wiki, the Doe Network, and some articles. There is an article from KenoraOnline.com from Thursday, December 15th, 2011. And this case is also mentioned in a Globe and Mail article by Adrian Morrow. It was published December 18th, 2011. And I also have listed Web Sleuth. Kenora is a city of 16,000 in Ontario, Canada. It's about 209 kilometers for our American friends, that's 130 miles, from Winnipeg, Manitoba. So that's about two hours and 20 minutes. And it's about 20 hours from Toronto, which I'm just pointing out to say that it is a long way away. Like it's, it's far. It's still in Ontario, but it's like the other Yeah, it's side. like, yeah. So on June 17th, 2009, a blue one-person tent was standing close to the Trans-Canada Highway in Kenora near Miller Rapids Road. A hiker found the body of a woman inside. She died of carbon monoxide poisoning from a hibachi grill inside the tent. Oh yeah, I've heard of that happening. Unidentified Wiki lists her cause of death as accident or suicide. She'd been given the nickname Millie. I'm assuming this is because she was found by Miller Rapids Road. Oh, for sure. So Millie. I also really love the does with just the one name. Oh, like It's like, like they've named them like Rosie. Yeah. I just think it, it kind of personifies them and they should yeah. be personified because they had a identity even if it might not be the name that they mm-hmm. choose for them so i think i always like to see that 
Um, she'd been dead in the tent for anywhere from one day to one week. The RCMP site says they believe the PMI or postmortem interval was a day or two. Constable Karen Rustage talked to locals and ruled out foul fall play? Fall play. Foul play. So Millie was a petite white woman, approximately 35 to 55 years old, and anywhere from 5 foot 3 to 5 foot 7. But Kathy Grusbier, a forensic anthropologist working with the coroner's office of Ontario, specified that she was 5 foot 4. Okay. She was 110 pounds. Her hair was dark blonde or brown and medium length with bangs. She appeared to be physically active. The fact that she went camping alone supports that. Okay, so... She was probably a smoker because her lower teeth had brown spots. Oh, yeah. Uh, but no cigarettes were found, or at least in any of the lists that I could see. Okay. So, oh, so she could have maybe been a smoker and not smoked anymore. I'm assuming she's quit at this point. So she had a jaw surgery in her early 20s to correct her bite. Her upper jaw was brought forward and her lower jaw was pushed back, which is correcting an underbite. Yeah. And to do this, her bones had been cut and wired together. (laughs) This is an old school method Mm -hmm. performed in the 80s. She had this jaw surgery in her early 20s. So if she was in her early 20s, at some point in the 80s, I would assume she was at the higher end of the age range estimate. That was 35 to 55. Yeah. What year was she found again? She was found in 2009. I would say she's probably not 35. No, no. But, like, that does not sound like a fun surgery. No surgery is fun, but... I've heard of that one because I know two people with underbites who have both gone, like, no, screw that. (sighs) No, thank you. I will just keep the underbite. Yeah, I'd rather not have any bones cut if I can... Yeah, no, thank you. I'm good. Yeah, real good. So, yes, I... Literally, the line after I say she's probably in her late 40s or early 50s. Oh, wow. We did math for no reason. We did. I did it before. Oops. Um, so an article from KenoraOnline.com says that this work was probably done in a, quote, major center, probably specialized enough that only surgeons in places with large populations did it, but I'm not sure what they classify as a major center. Usually that would be like Sudbury, uh, maybe Timmins. So um, like name recognition towns. Basically. Okay. Like if it's going to have, it's going to have the bigger font on a map. Thank you. That's a That's, visual cue I yeah, can use. Yeah. Okay. It's going to so. be somewhere where like a dental business could probably thrive. Also, it just clicked for me. This is a DNA dough project, but it's a Canadian case. Yes. So that means that we can they can take on Canadian cases? Her DNA is undergoing testing. Maybe it's because it's not like law enforcement in Maybe. Canada doing it. I don't know. But yeah, like, huh. Yeah. Huh. So if anybody knows, please let us know. So she also had braces at some point in her adult life. Okay. Yes. So in adult life. So here's a list of her clothing, jewelry, and additional personal items. And these are directly from the DNA Doe Network. I'm just listing them because... It's easier. So thank you, Doe Network. You've made a list. We will read the list. Her clothing was a gray wool sweater, a black long sleeve shirt, gray cotton undershirt with a built-in bra and straps... She was wearing black jockey underwear, size 5. Okay. Dark blue Midtown brand jeans, size 6P, which P, I'm assuming, means petite. petite. Okay. Gray leggings with lace trim, gray wool socks, thin white cotton socks, and black size 5 lace-up rugged outback ankle high shoes. And what month was she found again? June. I would also like to point out I'm keeping with my streak of... Tiny feet. Tiny feet. I just find all the does with tiny feet. You do. It's like a gift. 
well, she's definitely wearing the right clothing for like colder weather. I'm just yeah. wondering about. She does have a lot of layers on, but it can also be cold at night. That's true. And it is farther north in Ontario. Yeah. So, okay. There was talk on Web Sleuths that the Midtown jeans were sold at Zeller's, which is a discount store in Canada. Was. Was. Yes, you're right. Rest in peace, Zeller's. It was mostly liquidated in 2013, so it was still around in 2009. Yeah. And the label looks like the jeans are probably a little bit older than that, too. Okay. I have photos that I can show you. So you can see her glasses. Okay. And you can see her hiking boots. Yeah. And you can see that this sweater okay. is yeah. pretty woolen. Those are the jeans, the leggings. Okay. Oh, and, and there's the label. Yep. Oh, yeah. I can see what they mean. Yeah. It's pretty... Uh, it's pretty... 90s i'd it say is pretty 90s and then we're gonna get to it but these are what the beads she had are those like mardi gras beads to me they look a little like a step up like they look iridescent and they're all connected together on a clasp oh yeah i can see the clasp okay yeah and there's her tent so it's hmm. you know your basic it's like two-tone. Now what's that is that a book oh okay yes yeah, long way down Published in 2005, a dark comedy playing off the themes of suicide, angst, depression, and promiscuity. Oh, that doesn't sound good for a doe. No. Like, having said that, I read some pretty dark books. So, going into the jewelry. Right. There's that beads, which to me it looks like kind of like a pearl opalescent color, but the doe network is saying that it's yellow, blue, and pink. To me, the pink looks more red, too. It yeah, could just be it, the light. Yeah, it's hard to say. And the clip is magnetic. Oh. So she also had one hoop earring, description unavailable, and that was found inside the tent. Sounds like okay. all this was found in the tent. Um, and additional personal items, her glasses yeah. were brown, wire rim, and oval shaped, and they had a rimless bottom. And she had a used copy of the book A Long Way Down, which we just discussed, yeah. by Nick Hornby with a bookmark from a McNally Robinson bookstore inside of it. Was Which, that was that like a uh, a chain or is it like what was it again? McNally Robinson, uh, Canada's largest and most eventful independent bookseller, locally owned and committed to the values of community bookselling. It is located. Um, it's a chain of independent bookstores in Winnipeg. Okay, well that makes sense. And it was founded in 1981. Are you just reading this from the website? From Google. Interesting. So she probably came from Winnipeg then. Yeah, she at least bought the book there. Probably. It is only two hours and 20 minutes from Winnipeg. Yeah. She also had $75 in Canadian dollar bills. I didn't see anything about like how these bills were separated. Okay, yeah. $2.84 in Canadian coins. Again, not sure if that was like a toonie and quarters or whatever. A container of 13 Pfizer pills and a two-pack of back and muscle pain relief medication. And Pfizer, is that like... um. Not arthritis. Aspirin? I think that's just a brand name. Yeah. And I was going to say this is like um, Peter Turner, where I don't think that they can tell us what those were for. Oh. Pfizer is just like a, it's like a huge, it's like big pharma. So that's all we know. That's it. I, you know, I like to do some rabbit hole digging when I But can. there's no rabbit holes? There's no rabbit holes. What? None, none that I could see, at least. <gasps> just based on what she's got. She seems like she's really outdoorsy. Yeah. She's got all of the dental work and the jaw work. That seems pretty specific. So I feel like once the DNA Doe project has her DNA done, 
But like, I feel like because of that, it would probably be easier to eliminate people at least. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But no, this one feels like it'll be solved pretty soon. I'm just curious if it was an accident or suicide. Well, that's the thing. Because to me, I think the book, when we were talking about what it was about, I was like, oh, shit. But also, like, that doesn't really say anything. No, it doesn't. And even if she were an experienced camper, she could have made, like, a mistake with yes. the, leaving the grill on in an enclosed space. Because even people who have been doing the same thing over and over forever can easily make, like, just a dumb mistake. And maybe she hadn't done it before, but she thought, like, well, I've camped so many times and nothing bad has happened. And yeah. I'm smart and I'll get out of the tent if anything happens. Exactly. And that's really scary. Like, I remember um, hearing about a story about a whole family uh, in our hometown that died because they brought a barbecue in. I think it was like a power outage or something. when was... This was a couple years ago. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, which is terrifying and like... But yeah, so that's Millie. Oh, well, I'm excited to see how that progresses. Hi, I'm Jenny the host of It's Murder Up North. If you're curious about the murderous north of England, this podcast is definitely for you. I've lived in various parts of the north of England. I went to college in the shadow of Saddleworth Moor, where Myra Hindley and Ian Brady buried those five innocent children. I've worked in the city of Leeds, where the Yorkshire Ripper targeted his victims in the 1970s. Knowing how geographically close I've been to these crimes made me curious And that curiosity became this podcast. However, my main hope is to help you see the person, not the victim. Okay, so this is another case suggestion. This time it was suggested by Emily. Thank you, Emily. So thank you. On June 15th, 1993, a hiker in Pike San Isabel National Forest came across a young woman's body at the Rainbow Falls campground in Douglas County, Colorado located between Woodland Park and Deckers off Highway 67. I don't know what Deckers is. Maybe I should actually figure out what Deckers is. Okay, Deckers is an unincorporated community located along the South Platte River in Douglas County. So it's the name of a place that people live in. Okay. I was starting to wonder if it was a weird street name or a store. She died by blunt force trauma to the head. Based on the condition of her body, she had likely been killed two to three days prior to being found. The woman was white, approximately 13 to 20 years old, based on most recent analysis, with possibly dyed shoulder-length hair that was light brown or dark blonde. She was about 5'3 to 5'8 and 130 to 160 pounds, and she's described as having a curvaceous build. Her teeth were in good condition with no fillings, and two of her wisdom teeth had been removed. Two were still in place, but they were impacted. So I'm guessing they weren't really causing any problems, and that's why they got left in, Mm. Um, which indicates that she had access to dental care. On her upper left abdomen was a well-healed horizontal surgical scar from having her spleen removed sometime before her death. I have a question. Yes. Spleen is not like appendix, right? Like you probably have had it out because of some sort of yeah, like yeah. It's incident. Not, yeah, I think so. Okay. She had very short fingernails, either from trimming or chewing, and both ears were pierced, I think only once in the lobe. She was wearing a black Harley Davidson t-shirt, a clear stone or glass stud earring in her left earlobe, a gold pinky ring on her left hand, although the picture of it looks like it might be silver, but 
If they're saying gold, I'll go with gold. Yep. A gold chain necklace with a black crystal pendant and a gold necklace with a pendant of wizard hands holding a round tiger eye stone. So if you scroll down, I actually have the pictures of her stuff. Oh, nice. Uh, so that's the shirt. You know what this is reminding me of? Just because it's like a metal shirt. John Clinton Doe. And then below that are the pendants. I don't know where the chains went, but those are the pendants. You scroll down further, you'll see the uh, pinky ring. That's a pinky ring? Apparently. Uh, I like those pendants. I know, right? And this one, that's where it kind of hit me because this is the kind of thing I wore. I was going to say, I feel like I've seen that. And I, I feel like I've seen it on you. a pendant like that, except it's a uh, dragon wrapped around. That's probably what I'm thinking But the of. way she, like her description, like this is how I dressed when I was like 14, 15. So this one kind of was like, oh, wow, has hit a little close to home. I can corroborate that. Yep. So although she was found wearing only a t-shirt and jewelry, there was no evidence of sexual assault, but that doesn't rule out the possibility of non-intercourse assault. That's very true. Yeah. Her shoe size would have been about six to seven. Small-footed lady. So here's where it kind of gets interesting. From June 12th to 13th, there had been a meeting of the Vietnam Vets Motorcycle Club at the Horse Creek Campground south of Deckers, so nearby to where Rainbow Falls Doe had been found. Although no links have been found between her and the club, the Harley-Davidson shirt she was wearing could indicate that she'd been at the convention. It could. And she I could did also it. just be wearing it. but She could, but I do think that the fact that she was found close by... And within, like, two days of the convention. Because, like, it could very well be from there, but you can't really say for sure. Yeah, yeah. But I am leaning more. I'm leaning toward it. Um, Especially because of the next part. Okay. Uh, Her fingerprints and DNA haven't been matched to anyone, but isotope analysis conducted in 2018 indicated she was possibly from Alaska, B.C., Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Newfoundland, or very low probability, Eastern Quebec. Like, based on the isotope analysis, they were saying that she'd spent, like, most of her life in one of those places. So it's possible she'd, like, travel. That's why I'm kind of like, maybe if she traveled down for the meeting. That's true. Also, where was this? Colorado. Colorado. Okay. Just based on that, I would say the prairies are more likely than, yeah. like, Newfoundland? Yeah, yeah. And investigators believe she could have been a runaway from Louisiana, but I didn't see why they thought that. Interesting. So the Unidentified Wiki has a picture of a teenager arrested in 1992 who called herself Amanda Marie Morrison, who looks a lot like Rainbow Falls Doe, but since that was an alias, I don't think anything has come of it. Also in here, you can see, like, the really good sketch, which looks like a photo. So the... Oh, shoot. Yeah, yeah it, it looks like a photo. It looks like a photo. And then we have the neck mech one is the other sketch, which is also really nice. And then Carl Koppelman. With Colorado Mountains. He's got her. Colorado Mountains. And he's got her in the shirt. And all of her jewelry. And then we have the clay bus, which... They make her look very old. They do. And it's not just like the hair... Like, there's some, the way, like, clay does with um, the eyes, it ends up creating, like, wrinkle, like, crow's feet. And so it makes her look like she's 30s, 40s. And she does not look like that no. in the other ones. Especially since they're leaning more toward, like, a younger teenager, which you could see, like, looking at these other ones, you could see easily being, like, 
a, like say a 14, 15 year old. Yeah. Who maybe just looks mature for her age. Yes. As I did. I know that pain. <laughs> and um, yeah, like even on the high end of the rate of the age estimation, it looks completely too young for these yeah, clay busts. Yeah, like 25, it's like those clay busts look much, much, much older. So much I, older. I more look at the drawings. So Rainbow Falls Doe is buried in the Cedar Hill Cemetery in Castle Rock, Colorado. That's, That's it? Um, so they do have fingerprints and DNA available. So there's hope. Yes. And as usual, my sources for this one were Unidentified Wikia, NECMAC, NamUs, Doe Network, and also um, the Facebook page Rainbow Falls Jane Doe oh. has like all of this information on it. That's great. Like, there's a whole page dedicated to her. So that's where I started out. I'm going to like that Facebook page right now. Yes, good. So yeah, the guess theories mainly run away. Um, maybe had something to do with the meeting be- with the Vietnam Vets Motorcycle Club. I did a quick Google of them and they seemed like, not like um, Hell's Angels. Yeah. It's they m- seemed more like wholesome. Yeah. And yeah, yeah it kind of seemed like the I saw one thing where they were setting up a picnic for returning um, veterans. So My heart. I think they're more like, as the names say, probably started as a group of Vietnam vets getting together. And then I think they've just kind of kept on the tradition. Or she could just be... She could be unrelated to that. To anything. She maybe not a runaway or whatever. But I think they're leaning toward runaway just because like a young girl unidentified no one's claimed her or anything like that and they haven't found anyone looking for her and can we go over why they think this photo of this teen is her oh just because it looks like her it's not like she was they they had a tie between the amanda marie morrison name and this doe no like i googled the name and rainbow falls doe and didn't get anything also marie is like the most common middle name for woman is it really it's one of the most common names. Wow, I did not names. know that. Yeah. But yeah, I think someone, because with Unidentified Wiki, you can add photos. So I think this one came about because somebody like came across this photo and was like, this looks a lot like her and uploaded it. But because she was using an alias and this is just like a mugshot. Mm-hmm. So there was no DNA on file for her or anything. So they can't even be like, these are the same people. Oh, no. Hopefully this is something that will be investigated via forensic genealogy. Our favorite thing. It is. And our other favorite thing is when people send us case suggestions. We love that. So. so. Finally, we go to our identified for the episode. This is the case of Vita Calazzo. And my sources for this case are an article by Christina Oriel from July 16th, 2015 on Inquirer.net. An article by Pauline Ripard for the San Diego Union Tribune. Two articles from NBCSanDiego.com and more articles I'll put in the show notes as always. So, 38-year-old Jovita Calazzo disappeared from National City, California on May 1st, 1992. This is the South Bay region of San Diego. Jovita had separated from her husband, Michael Colazzo, but they were planning on reconciling their relationship. Jovita also had a boyfriend at the time named Michael Richardson, which is confusing because they're both Michael. She, she needs a new dude name. Or she could mistakenly call one the other and it wouldn't matter. Oh, that's, that's smart. So at the time, she was living with Richardson and her 13-year-old daughter, Michelle, lived with them as well. So Vita left Michael Colazzo's place to go to her house that she had with Michael Richardson. And it sounds like she was just getting a change of clothes or something. Like, it just kind of sounds like she was like, I'll be back soon. After this, there was nothing. Michael Colazzo was the last person who saw her alive. Police suspected Richardson in 1992. 
We're making nodding I bre- gestures. I, I'm, I'm going to suspect Richardson. Yep. Um, but because there was no evidence, he was never charged. But to me, there is one clear motive as she was making plans to get back together with yeah. her husband. Yeah. And if Richardson is an abusive, possessive type, which it sounds like he is, we'll get into that. Mm. Um, he probably couldn't handle it. Oh, for sure. So this is just a side note, but just to give you some background. We're on just kind of like setting the scene. Uh, so... Michael Richardson was convicted of armed robbery in North Carolina. He escaped prison when he went to prison for that. He, so he escaped in 1982. He was caught. He finished his sentence and he was paroled. And then he moved to San Diego. Um, so Fida's remains were found on October 31st, 1994 in Apple Valley, California. But it would take over two decades for her to be identified. Oh. Richardson married a woman named Tao. And they had a daughter in around 2004. Tao was 39 in June 2010 when Richardson murdered her and her 72-year-old mother, Fan Lai. They were found outside of an overturned car in Brush off of Highway 67. It seems like he tried to stage the scene like it was an accident. But the police realized that this was not what happened when they discovered gunshot wounds on one of the bodies. Yeah, that's going to be kind of clue. It's going to be a bit of a ping for them. Also, it's kind of really hard to set up like a car rollover scene by yourself too that's like i could see like maybe setting up rolling off a cliff or something although you'd need tire marks but that's true that's a really like there are easier ways to stage a death yeah i feel like this guy is one of those guys where he's like i can get away with anything yeah i'm gonna escape prison i'm gonna set up this fake accident all of this was complete overkill anyways because Fan's throat was slit and Tao was suffocated. So Yeah, investigators are going to notice that. Like you like you can't hide that. You don't accidentally cut your throat in an, an overdone car unless something like glass is shattered in a very specific way. And there was no it's not like there was any water around. Yeah, you'd need to suffocate because I don't know, some part of the car is now pressed against your face. Exactly. So they're gonna they're gonna know something's up. Yeah. Um, so investigators speculated that Richardson killed these two women because they found out he was molesting his seventeen-year-old niece. But so he's like the biggest shitbag. Like honestly, I just read a book. I think it was called like the Psychopath Whisperer. Oh yeah, I've heard of that one. And just because I'd read it recently, I was just kind of like thinking about what he was saying and the types of people he was interviewing in these prisons. And this sounds like that textbook. Yep. Yep. So they think that it's because he was molesting his 17 year old niece, but authorities were aware of this before the two women were killed. I hope they were like aware of it and planning to arrest him and not just aware of it and not doing anything. So once those murders were discovered, Vita's case was reopened. Oh, right, because Vita disappeared in 92. Right, and this is 2004? This is 2010. 2010. So I was almost close. So Vita's case was reopened. The San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department took samples from Michael Colazzo and their daughter in 2010, like DNA samples. I visited that office. I was thinking of you when I was reading about this. Um, so in July 2015... They identified Vita as the skeletal remains found in Apple Valley. Uh, there's a unit within the sheriff's department that only focuses on bodies found in the desert, and they had extracted Vita's DNA in 2008. And then in 2010, when the daughter's DNA matched with Vita, 
they realized that it was probably a match, but they had to confirm the match in July 2015. Okay. In 2013, Richardson pleaded not guilty to not only Vita's murder, but the murder of his wife and mother-in-law. Michelle, Vita's daughter, testified that Richardson had molested her for three years. No, he's like... He's such a piece of shit. Yeah, he's a monster. And Michelle is so strong. Yeah. I can't even... We're just Can we look- just, like, punt him off a cliff? I would love to do that. Oh, that would be nice. So due to California's three strikes law, his sentence was doubled meaning he was sentenced to six consecutive life terms with no chance of parole. Good. He never disclosed the motive for Vita's murder or how she was killed. But I think it's, it's obvious. It's, I think the motive at least is obvious. So he's a piece of shit and he's never getting out. So that's yay. Yay. There's at least that. And from a Fox 5 San Diego article by Bob Ponting, uh, this is a quote. Michael Colazzo said that he has waited 21 years, three months, and two weeks for Richardson to admit that he killed Colazzo's estranged wife, Vita. I always knew what you did, he told the defendant in court. You knew that I knew what you had done. Vita's case was featured on the Discovery ID series, Who Killed Jane Doe, in 2018. Oh, I remember... Was that on Netflix? Because I remember seeing that title card. I did not see it on Netflix. Like, I didn't watch it, but I remember seeing the title card. I don't know about Netflix, but I do know that you can buy whole seasons of that show on iTunes Ooh. or Apple or whatever they're calling iTunes now. I don't know. I was thinking it would be interesting for you and I to watch it together. We obviously aren't going to like podcast while we're watching it, but <laughs> we do a live commentary. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I had, I completely forgot about the estranged husband and what he must have been going through. Like if they were on yeah. the brink of like reconciliation and they'd already had a daughter together and you can like i'm just totally extrapolating but like you could probably like see like he was hopeful yeah she was hopeful and then finding out what he had done to her to his daughter that is rough (sighs) like me saying that is rough like i feel like that's so silly because what can you say to that yeah i know and you know that he wrongly blames himself at least for part of that like yeah when he shouldn't no no so that's kind of that's like a different kind of identified doe case yeah because it's like it's like it starts out as this one thing and then you find out all of this shit about this guy and like there's more murders and, and then yeah it's kind of like working backward yes and um yeah it can get pretty confusing because it's like wait they had the dna when and then they had to go like you go back and it's like oh they actually had Vita's DNA in 2008 but they didn't give their DNA until 2010. Yeah, and there's a lot that's the hard part to keep track of like when with all the dates and everything it's like okay so we have this so whose DNA do we have at this point whose DNA do we have at this point when was it compared and all this. But yeah, San Bernardino does a good job with their does. Yeah, they seem like they take it very seriously. They do and there are a ton. Yeah, there's a ton of does in San Bernardino and also um, the desert thing is because there's like the main highway from from San Bernardino to like Las Vegas, and tons of bodies get dumped down. Oh, in I the, bet because it's just so convenient. I can I can definitely see why they have a whole department. For yeah, that. yeah. Interesting. Yes, that's your that's your mini forensic fact. Okay, mini forensic fact. There you go. Um, I'm singing, so I feel like we should wrap up the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. You can like us on Facebook at Doe Podcast. We're at Doe Podcast on every social media thing that podcasts are on. You got your Twitter. You got your Instagram. You've got your, you already said Facebook. 
You've got your Gmail. You can Gmail. Gmail. You us? can Gmail us. You can email us. Doesn't matter what. Address Go to you Gmail use. and type in Dope Podcast. Dope Podcast at gmail.com. We have a website. Dopepodcast.com. Because we have managed to grab like all of our names and it's such a good feeling. Yay. We don't have to make up some weird things. I still think we should make a MySpace. I feel like <gasps> we should make a live journal. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, we should definitely make a live journal. I'd actually be into that. Honestly, why didn't I make our website a live journal? Oh my God, that we would stand out from the rest of the dope. We would. <laughs> or the rest of the podcasts. Coming soon, dopepodcast.livejournal.com. Ah, yeah. It's funny. I say that and then some people are like, I don't know what that is. And the people who know, they know. And they're crying. Probably. Okay, I'm tired. As am I. Okay, we're going to go. Bye. Bye.